Good evening, everyone. Thanks again for, uh, we had a good crowd last night, and thanks again to everyone for coming tonight also. Uh, there, I think there's food left if anyone needs any more, and there's dessert over there, so be sure to be sure to partake of that. You can have my share. So, uh, Thank you again for being here for the Judy Matthews uh, Lectureship Series. Uh, I think most of you are familiar with it, so I won't go into it again, but it is a vision that Judy had uh, to provide a venue for uh, for scholars and speakers, and of course, we're very proud to have uh, Bishop Scott Jones with us uh, tonight, uh, last night, and tonight uh, to share uh, uh, a talk on radical discipleship. Uh, bishop Jones has has been uh, a bishop in several conferences, uh, so we're very glad he's here. He's been a, a teacher at Perkins, which uh, is is one of the sources of of the of the lectureship. Uh, we, we try to get professors from uh, from Perkins to come every other every other year. Uh, so uh, with that, I think y'all have been introduced to him before. So we'll let we'll let uh, Bishop Jones uh, go ahead and get started with this talk. Thank you. I want to let you know that my wife Mary Lou has joined me tonight. Mary Lou is down here, so. Uh, they were asking about you last night, Mary Lou, and she got back into town about 10 o'clock last night and uh, been active at her day job during the day today. And do you have any words you want to say, Mary Lou, and things you want to? Well, I was told I'd get the mic. So, um, you know, I, Scott and I have a really great relationship. Um, we love each other a lot, and I love him enough to make a lot of fun of him. <laughs> Um, and he loves me enough to take it. <laughs> so uh, I don't really need to say too much except to um, tell you all that um, we really uh, enjoy being in the Texas Annual Conference. We've been here in Houston for a year. We've had our first hurricane, which I've heard doesn't really count as a hurricane because the wind didn't come with it at our place. Um, but And we did not get flooded, thankfully. And I'm... I, I don't know how bad it was right around here, but many, many, many of our churches and, and pastors and spouses are displaced, and, and um, uh, most of them, it wasn't both the church and the pastor, so that's good. It was one or the other. <laughs> so I think one place had both the church and the pastor out. Um, but anyway, I, I really have enjoyed being here in, in Houston. It is much more humid than my home turf, and so I'm learning to deal with that. But I, I, I'm feeling pretty good about it. On the other hand, the winter was really pleasant, drinking coffee on our back porch. So I did say to my daughter one of those January days when we were sitting out on the, in the backyard drinking our coffee, I said, well, Houston does have its charms in January. <laughs> Indeed. But uh, we are really happy to be here, and, and um, Scott has just jumped right in, and I'm trying to keep my, I have a business in Kansas, and I'm trying to keep that going, and my day job going, and <laughs> um, we, I actually have, I have a construction company, and we have crews that work in Nebraska, and Kansas, and Oklahoma, and West Texas. So I do work in Texas, but most of it's out in the Aveline, Big Spring, um, Midland-Odessa area. But, um, I, you know, did they want me to tell something funny about you? 
Um, Marty would be thrilled if you would tell. I know. You know, Marty is the one who told me that I should. So I did a, um, a ten things you ought to know about Scott Jones at conference one year, and it became quite the popular thing because um, he. There are so many just really endearing qualities he has. And I consider my job to be, um, well, kind of to keep him humble, but mostly to make him blush, which, as I often say, is really low-hanging fruit, because he blushes so easily. But um, <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I'll just tell you about him, I'll just, uh, just one of the just endearing things about Scott Jones. Here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. I, you know, it's just choosing that one that I... So, so I, I'll have to tell you the best moment at annual conference this year. How many of you were at annual conference? Oh, so a few. But, so I'm, it's, a, it's a repeat for you guys. But the best moment of annual conference was when I... One of the things I told him is that Scott will eat anything. No, I mean, he'll eat anything. Um, he has even, uh, he, we were on a trip one time, and he is stuffing his mouth. And I said, Scott, what are you doing? I mean, it wasn't even good food. And he said, it's about the calories. I don't know where my next meal is coming from. And I was like, I don't think you're starving. No. No. Um, but he'll also, you know, he'll also eat off the floor. So that, you know, when he drops something, he just eats it. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't even cross his mind not to do that. So one time we're in Washington, D.C., and we're eating at an outside cafe, and we're on the streets of Washington, D.C., and I don't even remember what it was he dropped. But, man, before I could even say anything, he had picked it up and eaten it. He ate off the street of Washington, D.C. And I looked at him and said, Oh my gosh, I have to kiss you! <laughs> and then I did at annual conference, I said, So it's kind of like having a dog in the house. You know, you drop something, he eats it. And it was at that moment that Dr. Stancil left the stage. Scott dived under the table. <laughs> and I said, Well, you know, when you call the bishop a dog, you're in trouble. That's really not very embarrassing because I'm a Boy Scout, and if you're on a camp out, that's the only way you survive. It really is all about the calories. Lee, you're standing up. Are you wanting a rebuttal? Yeah, I forgot to apologize. Uh, Jim, will you lead us in an opening prayer, please? <laughs> we do need to pray. Thank you for Bishop Jones and his wife uh, being here. Uh, we just, our wish, Father, is that you transform us into the likeness of your son. And we pray that through these words tonight, that process would continue. Uh, keep our hearts open. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I truly am grateful to be here and grateful for the opportunity to have an audience. My spiritual gift is teaching. 
Uh, that worked out really well when I was a full-time member of the SMU faculty. Uh, becoming bishop means I have to scrounge up audiences or take invitations that come up, and so I'm now uh, glad that you all have uh, committed to come and, and listen to me a little bit tonight, so thank you for that. Uh, when I heard Lee give the list of previous Matthews lecturers, that's quite a distinguished group, and so it's quite an honor for me to be following in some of their footsteps. Uh, to recap where we've been since yesterday morning, I have been focusing on radical discipleship and really working off of the first 13 verses in Philippians 2. Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. I don't know what your devotional pattern is. Uh, I would encourage you to read the upper room every day. I get mine by email every morning, and so because I rely on my personal computer, I read the upper room devotional every day. It gives me a different scripture lesson. But also, I have a certain text of scripture that I read every day for the whole year. Right now it's Ephesians 4. I read that whole chapter every day as my devotional time. But if you were to read Philippians 2, that would serve you well as one of those formative kinds of places. Because as I've been trying to get across to you in the sermon and then the presentation last night and tonight as well, I think what Paul is trying to get across here is that God's grace is trying to shape our hearts and minds to become the kind of people God wants us to be. And that by reading a text like that, you'll get new insights on a daily basis for what that looks like. Tonight, I want to talk about radical discipleship as a congregation, as a church community. Last night, we talked about work and family. We talked about other ways in which God's grace is shaping us. But if we belong to a body of Christ, if we belong to a congregation and participate in it, how is it that the grace of God is shaping the, the behavior, the patterns of our life together as brothers and sisters in Christ? What's that like as a congregation and how is God's grace forming this community of faith? One of the ways in which I want you to think about that is how is this congregation's life shaping the individuals? Well, one of the most important things that we can do as a congregation is to create the ability to get along with each other and to stay focused on our purpose. We're living in days and times when so many forces in American culture are pulling people apart and causing divisions. To some extent, that's a result of, well, the digital revolution, we all have different TV news channels we watch, different entertainment things we watch. Uh, technology has allowed us to migrate into smaller and smaller groups of people, and we don't always get in, have to encounter people who think differently than we do. Well, I think one of the advantages of belonging to a church is that there are going to be people, maybe in your own Sunday school class, certainly within your congregation, certainly between congregations, who come at things just a little bit differently than you do. 
My evangelism book is dedicated to Marty Kennedy. Marty Kennedy was a laywoman in the Howe United Methodist Church. She uh, was a deeply spiritual woman. She led the women's Bible study on Wednesday mornings. She was a spiritual giant. I talked about Elizabeth Snell in my sermon. Uh, Marty is up there with Elizabeth Snell. Just an incredible woman. But she had a more conservative take on Scripture than I did, more of a literalist. And as we did disciple Bible study together, and we got to the book of Revelation, the question arose, are the streets of heaven really paved in gold? I had an argument with Marty. My argument with Marty was, Marty, you know, this is a metaphor. Because if you read the text carefully, Revelation is trying to teach you that, well, it's, it's, the streets are valuable, they're important. Heaven is an incredibly beautiful place, but it's not real gold. Because it says the gold is so pure, it's transparent. Well, pure gold is not transparent. That's the clue that the author of Revelation is trying to get across, that this is a metaphor that you're not supposed to take it literally. Oh, no, Scott. She insisted that the streets were paved with real gold the way it says in the text. Well, there's a hymn that has as its course, We shall tread the streets of gold when we all get to heaven. Every time we sang that, there's Marty sitting in the third pew on the left side from where the preacher's looking, just grinning her biggest <laughs> grin. Here the preacher is being told once again he's wrong and she's right that the streets are really streets of gold. Well, you know, the Bible is a diverse book, and part of the importance of doing Bible study in groups is that people read the text a little differently. And it's only as you hear other people and their take on it that you begin to get a sense of what might be God trying to tell us about all of that. Well, the same is true of applying the Christian faith to our lives. Uh, one of the things I love about being in the United Methodist Church is that we're a big tent. When uh, I was on the faculty of Perkins and George W. Bush was president, the uh, Iraq war was going on, the Afghanistan war was going on, Swedish television sent a reporter to interview me. How they got my name, I don't know. But I'm out in front of Perkins Chapel and, and this cameraman is filming me and the reporter says, how can George Bush be a Christian? Well, I don't always get things right, but that time I said something that I've repeated over and over ever since. I said, when you get your mind wrapped around the fact that both Senator Clinton and President Bush are active and faithful United Methodist Christians, you'll begin to understand how each of them has a faith that's motivating them to try to change the world and be obedient to God's will, they just disagree about how to go about improving the world. Well, I've repeated that line ever since, because it's true, Hillary Clinton and George W. Bush are both active United Methodist Christians, and I said, I usually get in trouble with one or the other of those names depending upon my audience. <laughs> well, that's true. They tend to excite our passions, either for or against one or the other of them. Uh, and yet the fact that they both are trying to serve Christ and they just have a different take on what that means, and yet we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. 
And so how do we create communities that have that commitment to the common good and yet a willingness to talk about our differences and to explore them and do so with mutual respect? I ran across a quote from President John Adams, one of the founding fathers, a drafter of the Declaration of Independence, who talked about the importance of having people of character as citizens and the role that religion plays in forming that character. He said about our Constitution, remember he was there at the drafting, we had no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. If you want to know what's led to some of the problems in our culture today, it's partly the decline of church attendance. It's partly the fact that so many people think that they can be good citizens without forming their own character. It's partly that in our Sunday schools, in our worship services, in the small groups I was pushing you to get into last night, in all the ways that our churches invite people to give away their money and their time in service to the poor and people in need, that in those experiences, Christian character is formed, which prepares people to be the kind of citizens that our country needs. Freedom is a wonderful thing for people of good character. Freedom is a terrible thing for people who are immoral and evil and prepared to exploit others. Our government is hopefully a limited government. We don't have enough police. We don't have enough people to, to cope with a, a population that's full of evildoers. In fact, when a, a Frenchman named de Tocqueville toured America in the 1830s, looking at democracy in America because as a European he couldn't figure out how could these Americans possibly govern themselves without the authoritarian role of an emperor or a king. The argument he made is that the key to the success of American government are its churches, its schools, its clubs, its social organizations that are free of government requirements and yet shape community, shape our organizations, shape the lives of its people. And so part of the problem with America today is this breakdown of community that I talked about last night and the fact that so many people stay home. So many people don't gather in groups. So many people don't come out to eat barbecue and hear some bishop talk on a Monday night. Um, really because Life has gotten so complicated and so many other opportunities. I'm not sure I explained to you how Putnam believes that community is broken down in American culture, but one of the factors is the invention of air conditioning. There was a time in Texas on a September night even, or now I guess it's October night, people would have been out of doors because it's just too dang hot to be inside. 
And as they were out of doors, they were interacting with their neighbors. Another factor is the invention of television. People stay home, they watch the plug-in drug, that's what I call it. <laughs> and after five hours of watching TV, they wonder, why am I lonely? You know, yes, the TV's talking back to you, but the people on TV are not your friend. They're not going to hold your hand and grieve with you when something bad happens. They're not going to challenge you to be a better person uh, when they know your circumstances. So all of these factors have led to the breakdown in community. And one of the most important tasks for any church to have is to form new kinds of community that will shape people's character and create better citizens and to help them become the kind of holy people, moral people, that we were talking about last night. There's another role for the church to play. <clears throat> my brother, Greg Jones, I call him my younger, smarter brother because he's six years younger than I am and he got his PhD first. And when I was an untenured assistant professor, he was full professor and dean of Duke Divinity School. But my younger, smarter brother has been going around talking about something he calls social innovation. He was beginning to teach a course on that at Duke University, along with somebody from the business school. The guy from the business school was a man named Greg Dees. Greg Dees was looking at culture and organizations, and especially nonprofit organizations. And as he and Greg were having lunch today, one day, uh, he said, Greg, whatever happened to the church? My brother said, what do you mean? Well, he said, at the beginning of the 20th century, it was the church that was on the cutting edge of dealing with the social problems in American culture. As cities were growing, it was the church that looked around and innovated and found new ways of doing things. In the African-American community, it was the church that was the bulwark against the difficulties of living in a segregated society. As people came to the cities, it was the church that provided settlement houses to help them figure out how to adapt to city life from rural life. It was the Methodist church that founded Goodwill Industries. Methodist Hospital in Houston was founded by the church. Why? because the poor were not getting adequate medical care. And the Methodist Church founded a hospital in order to deliver quality medical care to those who were outside of the current system of getting medical care. Over and over again, the churches in America founded institutions, sometimes universities, sometimes schools. They were on the cutting edge of figuring out how to do things. So Greg Dees said to my brother, whatever happened to the church? Greg Jones, my brother, and I believe the time has come for once again the church to figure out how God can use us to transform the society. We are living in a day and time when our governments are usually, well, not the state government, but the federal government is living on borrowed money when there's a resistance to raising taxes, and yet the number of social problems are increasing dramatically. We live in a day and time when too many children are being raised by single-parent families, 
And being raised in a single-parent family is the one indicator of a lifetime of poverty more than any other indicator. We live in a day and time, especially in the greater Houston area, of incredible immigration. I'm told, I don't know if everybody who tells me these statistics has got it right, but it's worth repeating, that 25% of the greater Houston population was born outside the United States. There are 170 languages spoken in these 11 counties. That's a huge blessing. Mary Lou and I find it an exciting place to live. We had a, uh, got one of those Uber cars to take us to the airport one time when that was the best way to do it. Our driver was uh, Pakistani and was recommending an Afghan restaurant to us. <laughs> you know, Houston is an interesting place. Stephen Kleinberg, the professor at uh, Rice University, tells me that Houston is the most diverse city in America. I believe it. As we ride our bicycles along Bray's Bayou, we see all kinds of people on the streets, on the, on the sidewalks, uh, out in the parks. And so one of the questions I have to put for you tonight is, how is the church responding to these realities around us? What would it look like for our congregations to pray, to think, to dream bigger than we are. Well, I want to lift up four challenges that I think are worth praying about, thinking about, how our congregations can become even more effective and fruitful in serving God than we currently are. Now, Lord knows, we are already doing a lot. I am so proud to be a United Methodist Christian. I think God has created a lot of things that we're doing, and it's just absolutely wonderful. But I'm also beginning to suspect that, well, we have more potential than we're currently exercising. We have more resources that we could bring to bear. And one of the questions that's interesting to me is, what's our role in responding to Hurricane Harvey? I believe that the government has a role to play in that and that FEMA and others need to be responding. Lord knows the, the designation of floodplains and the uh, uh, question of buying out houses that have been flooded two or three times is an important one. We need scientists who can tell us what is a 500-year flood and why have we had three of them in the last decade. Um, you know, those are things that we need government experts to take care of for us. But I also believe that there's a role for the church to play in long-term recovery. So that your church has already stepped forward and said, uh, we want to be a leader in that effort. I know that the response to Hurricane Harvey is one that's going to take us three years at least. We're going to have to have uh, various people set aside to respond and do the necessary work to do this work well. For better or worse, the United Methodist Church has had a lot of experience with this. We've been involved in emergency relief in a lot of places. Here in Houston, we did that with Hurricane Rita. In the New Orleans area, it was Katrina. In all parts of the country, we have people who are trained in that sort of disaster response. One of the mottos for our United Methodist Disaster Relief is that we're among the first in and usually the last ones out. 
I was in Kansas. The difference there is that tornadoes don't give you a three-day warning so that you go to the grocery store. It's immediate. If you're lucky, you have a 30-second warning. You can get to your basement. Do you all know what a basement is? Have you ever seen a basement? Um, you know, Mary Lou and I sheltered during the uh, warnings. We have a, a, a wet bar that looked to be the most secure place. It's on the main floor of the house because we used to go to basements and now we don't have one. But in Kansas, you go to a basement and you ride out the storm and yet the same sort of recovery process, it takes years for that to happen. Well, you may remember in 2005, Greensburg was a town in southwest Kansas that was three-quarters wiped out by a tornado that was a mile wide. Um, I knew the leaders of the Methodist Church in Greensburg. I was there to visit and inspect the damage on the third day afterwards. We set up a disaster relief station in the town seven miles outside because there was no place in Greensburg that was suitable for a disaster relief station. Three years later, the mayor of Greensburg, who happened to be chair of the staff parish committee of the Greensburg United Methodist Church, sent me an email and said, you know, you were right. Everybody else has quit the response, and we Methodists are still going. Thank you. This man had been a state legislator, a treasurer of the state of Kansas. He knew political leaders. He was the mayor of the town. But his witness was the United Methodist Church was still there. We're going to still be doing Hurricane Harvey relief in 2020 because it just takes that long to process all of the issues to get involved in that. And there's a whole array of resources that we can bring to bear as a denomination, as a church. United Methodist Committee on Relief is sending us serious money to help set up these stations. Uh, people from all over the world have been giving to UMCOR and knowing that some of that would come here. Meanwhile, it's also going to Irma and also going to Puerto Rico and all these other disasters that have happened. Um, sometimes people think, well, UMCOR is responding. Where's the UMCOR truck and the people? That's not how it works, friends. The boots on the ground are your boots and my boots. They're our boots. It's the volunteers. UMCOR will come in and provide training for us. They send us money. They help us get ready for it. They had flood buckets at a depot in Louisiana that volunteers had put together and stashed. Um, we had some flood buckets ready up in uh, our depot in Conroe. In other words, the Methodist connection works in this sort of diversified way. And the question is, how does a church like this one gear up with volunteers, with resources, with other things to be ready to be a part of the marathon. There are people who were flooded out of their homes who are eager that we need response now. This noon, the pastors of our district were here and the district superintendent, Tony Vinson, said that he's hearing from people who are really impatient at how slow this is going. You know, I'm not the director, but the guy who is the director tells me this is normal. People are eager to get back to their homes, to get something happening, and yet to do it well with integrity takes some time, takes some organization, 
and we're moving about as fast as we can move. I'm grateful that this church has uh, set, us, set aside some of Eddie Hilliard's time to be involved in this ministry. I'm grateful that you all have volunteered so that uh, the North Texas Conference settled in Dallas, uh, had flood buckets, and uh, I knew that you all would make good use of them. And so I delivered flood buckets on the first Saturday after, uh, Friday I think it was, after the uh, uh, hurricane, because you all were prepared to receive them and then get them distributed places. So this is part of what sanctification looks like for a community where you decide as a group of people that you're going to organize your common life together to make an impact on people around you. A second issue is racial reconciliation. One of the things I'm grateful for is that Missouri City First has opened its doors to One Life as a home and that they were people from both congregations and worship Sunday morning one Life, I'm grateful that you all were willing to come into a building that uh, is predominantly white because 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in American culture. My story about this is a man named Richard. Richard is a redneck southern boy, Texan to the core, University of Texas Longhorn. He has a great love for General Robert E. Lee. He uh, occasionally used to talk about the War of Northern Aggression and all that sort of stuff, but you get the idea of who Richard is. Well, Richard and I were uh, active in the Emmaus movement in Dallas. Uh, he was lay director on a walk. I was a spiritual director for him. Richard was a faithful member of the United Methodist Church. O.J. Simpson's just been in the news because he got out of prison from his conviction. Uh, back at his first trial, where he had been uh, accused of killing his wife, there was a lot in the news about um, the trial because the piece, crucial piece of evidence was a gun that had been found uh, by the police in O.J.'s home near the swimming pool. There were news reports in the Dallas paper where the reporter was suggesting that there was a racial divide in how people perceived how the trial was going. That black folk, by a vast majority, believed that the evidence had been planted by this white cop. White people believed by a vast majority that O.J. was guilty as all get out. Richard calls me up. Scott, did you see that article in the morning news? I said, yeah. He said, how can those black people think such a stupid thing? O.J. is guilty as all get out. It's just obvious to everybody. The cops have him stone cold guilty. Why are they not believing the evidence because it's just so obvious? I said, Richard, do you know any black people? <laughs> he said, no. He went to a white church. He didn't know any black folk. I said, Richard, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm giving you the name of two black pastors. I expect you to take one of them to lunch and you ask him that question. <laughs> to Richard's credit, he did. A month later, he calls me back and says, I took so-and-so to lunch. We had a really interesting conversation. I now get it. 
I'm not sure that Richard's mind was changed about O.J.'s guilt. But I know that Richard's Methodist connection, because he was in a denomination that at least had some black churches and some African-American people he knew and could trust, and that he actually took the risk to get close to somebody from a different ethnic group and to ask a hard question, and that this pastor was willing to take the time to take this redneck Texan whom he disagreed with and have an honest dialogue, that that was the opportunity for building some mutual understanding. Friends, we live in a world where those conversations happen far too infrequently. We live in a world where people work with stereotypes that come off of our television screens, or worse, Facebook? Good heavens, if that's where you're getting your news, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> or some news program that's biased, or some rumor mill that comes from the water cooler. And to figure out how can I develop a relationship I'm not even asking for a friendship, just a safe place to meet some people who see things differently than you do because they're in a different ethnic group. They're in a different conversation. Creating those safe spaces requires a church to do that. Now, maybe you can create it in your own neighborhood. Maybe somebody next door to you or down the street is from a different ethnic group than you. But more and more, our neighborhoods are segregated. More and more, we don't socialize with people who are of a different ethnic group than us. And so figuring out a safe space to have that conversation where you can ask a tough question um, all of a sudden gives you, broadens your experience and helps you understand people with whom you're in relationship. And the church can be involved in that kind of racial reconciliation. We're doing that in two ways in the Houston area. Project Curate is based at St. Paul United Methodist Church. And the South District is creating what they're calling courageous conversations where you spend an evening over dinner. One third of your table will be Hispanic, one third African American, one third white. And you have to approach that with the opportunity to really connect with the humanity of the other person. When we do conference events, and there are people from all those different ethnic groups. Then throw in some Asians, some Koreans, some Pakistanis, maybe even some Yankees from Kansas. I mean, you need to get some diversity in the room. You all could have laughed at the Yankee joke, but uh, Mary Lou's here. Maybe you thought that was I was being mean to her. Um, the point being that building some understanding of differences is an important step. A third issue that's going on in our culture today that I don't have an answer for. Houston is a hub for human trafficking. The whole Super Bowl event where the number of prostitutes in the city rose dramatically. Uh, the uh, kidnapping of young women and forcing them into uh, being a prostitute is a huge issue. Now, for most of us, it's not something we're engaged in. We don't really understand how that could happen, and it's hidden in our society. And yet, the amount of human trafficking that's going on just right under our noses is huge. How is it that the church is going to respond to that whole issue and to help rescue people? 
we live in a situation where uh, sexual immorality is more and more widespread, where it's more and more acceptable in our culture. Uh, how is it that we're going to respond and deal with that? Um, it's not something we tend to address openly in church. We don't really like to talk about it. Um, and yet, it's one of those big problems that's affecting a lot of people in, in our world and in our society and would be a place that our church could organize and do some things. The last thing is a program that I've begun to launch in the Texas Annual Conference. Uh, at Annual Conference, for those four or five of you who were there, you heard me announce a, a mantra, we love all God's children. I did that because I've been praying, okay, God, what's my vision? What difference can I make for the Methodist movement in these 58 counties? And I've been impressed with the diversity of our city, talking about greater Houston, not just Missouri City or Stafford, but this 11-county area that includes all the way down to Galveston and all the way up to Montgomery. The diversity here is amazing. And I'm hopeful that United Methodists will begin looking around them and saying, oh, there are people different from us living in our neighborhood. How do we reach them? That's the genesis of the word all in the slogan, that we need to figure out that God has put on our doorstep some people who are immigrants, who are new to our city, who uh, aren't the same as us. How can we reach out and share God's love with them. Secondly, I use the word children very intentionally. One of the mantras for the future of the Methodist Church that we need to repeat over and over again is that we need more people, more young people, and more diverse people. We need to figure out how to reach children. We also need to how to reach out young adults, everybody, more people. But I have been teaching evangelism now for 20 years, and I've come to recognize that it's really hard to convince adult United Methodists to verbally share their faith with other adults. I can tell you how to do it. I've been teaching it. Uh, I think we need to do it. And yet, I keep running up against a brick wall. I look people in the eye and say, God's called you to be an evangelist. And the eyes glaze over, and people check out, and they look at their watch and say, surely he's about through, uh, you know. But in reality, the, the future of Missouri City United Methodist Church, or One Life, depends on you lay people more than those preachers over there. Because when the preacher invites somebody to church, oh, he or she's just trying to get more members for his church. When you invite somebody to church, well, it's like one beggar telling another beggar where they found some food. If everybody's hungry, and you found a great church where there's good preaching if the bishop's not there, then you get to invite your neighbors to come meet Christ at this church. That's amazing. While I've been teaching that for 20 years, it doesn't usually work. People go home and think, well, that's just the preacher's job. We'll let them recruit new members. What I do know is that most United Methodists love children and that we have a soft spot in our heart for the little ones. And if we can figure out 
how to engage in ministry with children, well, you know what happens? Their parents might come along with them. Now, I need to tell you that designing a good children's ministry has got to be part of a holistic strategy so that you do, in fact, bring their children to worship. For example, one of the ways in which I'm talking about loving all God's children is that every congregation ought to run a, disciple, I mean, a vacation Bible school that invites as many children as possible. There are some churches in our conference that don't do a vacation Bible school because we don't have any children. I want to look at them and say, are there any in your community? Are there any within five miles of your church? Sometimes lay people look and say, well, we don't have any children in our community. One district superintendent I know called up the school district and found that in that town, they had just bought two portable buildings for the first and second grade in the school district. What those older United Methodists believed is, all our children are gone. What they really need to have is a heart for all the children in the community. So you run a, vi a vacation Bible school that is as big as possible, which means some of you retirees need to volunteer 20 hours that week, either to make snacks or to teach or to corral misbehavior or something else. And that as you're staffing up for the biggest possible vacation Bible school that you can run, you then design it with this in mind. On the registration card, you ask for church home. Everybody who lists such and such an Episcopal church or such and such a Lutheran church, you bless them and send them on their way because in the doing evangelism, we do not proselytize. We're not trying to steal members from another church. We're not going to borrow a Baptist, purloin a Presbyterian, or capture a Catholic. <laughs> when we invite, when we get somebody to change from one denomination to another, this is just changing divisions in the same army, okay? Uh, we're not out to do that. But for everybody who puts, doesn't fill in a church home, ah, they ought to be invited to come to church the next Sunday. So Vacation Bible School is designed so that everybody who's there Monday through Friday is part of a program that will be put on in worship the next week. And that's a way that the parents need to come and see their kids perform. And you gear up your hospitality in the church so that everybody who comes for that Vacation Bible School program is welcomed. This is what I mean by a discipleship emphasis in your children's ministry because you really are doing the necessary study to figure out what's the radius that our church can reach? Maybe all of Missouri City, I don't know. Maybe even outside, maybe you're reaching people from Stafford, maybe you're reaching people from Sugarland, but you're working hard to invite as many people as you possibly can. Another emphasis of my Love All God's Children program is that we're loving them through education. By education, I mean to work hard at our partnership with local schools so that we go to the local public school and say, what do you need? How can we help you? Now, that principal is underfunded, overwhelmed, and needs as much help as he or she can get. I'm really thinking here about elementary schools primarily because that's where the biggest need is and the biggest impact. Our public schools are on the cutting edge of every social problem in America. 
When we talk about the breakdown in a family, when we talk about domestic violence, when we recognize that a number of kids in our city, here in Missouri City, are hungry several days a month, then all of a sudden, how can you possibly learn? How can you possibly behave well when you have the kind of trauma going on at home and you come to school and all of a sudden they're expecting you to study, to learn, to behave well, and the teachers are given the responsibility for meeting test scores and corralling behavior, this is an impossible situation. At the very least, your prayer warriors ought to be praying for the teachers of that school. You ought to be thanking the teachers and taking them snacks for their break room. You might be delivering backpacks to the kids. Or better yet, you might be tutoring them. So that figuring out how to develop a one-on-one -on -one relationship with some of those kids and teaching them how to read. What Steven Kleinberg has taught me is that the number one predictor of a life of poverty and entry into the criminal justice system, ending up in prison, is not reading at grade level by third grade. Literacy is the biggest thing people can do to end poverty in America. We've all worried about the income gap. We know that the middle class is shrinking. We know that people who are wealthy and have good jobs are increasing their wealth. We know that a number of high-paying, above-minimum-wage jobs in manufacturing are diminishing. And by the way, you all are in Houston, we all in Houston are in better shape because of the oil industry. We've got more of those kinds of jobs than a lot of people have. But the reality is that literacy becomes the crucial factor in helping people live a successful life. Many of our children, pre-K, first grade, are coming from families where their parents are illiterate. They don't read. Or they might be too poor to have books in their homes. So one of the things I'm beginning to pray about is how can our Methodist churches here in the greater Houston area all of a sudden organize ourselves to do a better job of combating illiteracy among preschools and kindergartners, first grade, second grade. People have said, but Bishop, we need to care about the youth as well. I care about the youth, but I'm going to focus my energies on these really young ones because these are formative years. And so figuring out how to address the literacy issue, either by volunteering or maybe we need to create more preschools in Methodist churches and provide scholarships. Our churches in Houston have some of the highest quality preschools around, but they typically serve members of our churches or people who can afford to pay and figuring out how to provide preschool opportunities for poor kids who couldn't otherwise afford it is a real challenge. In other words, this is the kind of social innovation where we have a lot of people who, I hope, are on that journey to sanctification that I talked about last night. I hope we have a lot of people coming to Marty and uh, Jim and Eddie and saying, God's called me to serve and I've got every Tuesday of the week, how can I make a difference in somebody's life? When I was pastor, nobody ever said that to me, but I'm hoping to set you up here, Marty. Um, the point being that, that somebody who feels God's tug on their life 
and says, you know, I, I want to make a difference in some kid's life. Um, how can I go about doing that? Coming alongside our public schools, figuring out a way to make a difference in the life of some kid from a broken family or a difficult place. Um, I'll tell you a story that's a true story out of uh, St. Joe, Missouri. Uh, a friend of mine grew up Methodist, went back to her high school reunion. One of her classmates came. Now, at these high school reunions, not everybody shows up at church on the next morning, you know what I mean? But my friend and this other guy that she hadn't seen in 30 years showed up in church. And it was a small church, and they had a, a thank you and you know, prayers and concerns kind of time. And this guy who had come back for the reunion stood up, and he said, I don't have a prayer or concern, but I want you to know why I'm here. I've come to say thank you. Because I grew up in this church, in the Sunday school and in the youth group. What none of you all knew is that my father was abusing my mother. And that when I tried to protect her, he started beating on me. He was an alcoholic, which maybe some of you knew. But I lived in a very abusive home environment. And the only safe place I had was Sunday school and MYF. And he then named three of the women who by now were in their 80s and said, you all saved my life. And I've just come to say thank you. Friends, what I know is that those stories are multiple. That I'm sure your church is already doing that for a number of young people. That you're saving some lives of kids whose stories you don't even know. And my question is, how can we ramp that up and do even more of it? The only really unique thing about the St. Joe story is that he actually came back and said thank you and that I learned about it enough to tell the story to you. But I'm convinced that there are lots of those stories out there. And the question is, how can we do even more of it than we've done, been doing? I come back to the Philippians 2 text. That we need to have this mind in us, which was in Christ Jesus. That we serve a Savior who emptied himself and took the form of a slave and died on the cross. We're not serving a savior who got rich. We're not serving a savior who grabbed the power that Satan offered him. We're not serving a savior whose goal was to uh, be uh, the, the ruler of the whole world. We're serving a savior who figured out that the meaning and purpose of life was to give as much of ourselves away as possible. Partly that's about us as individuals, Partly it's about creating a community that to the greatest extent possible is asking God, how can you use us as a church family to change the world? I've left you some time now for questions. <clears throat> There's a microphone someplace because I'm told they're recording this. Uh, what are the questions you have that you want to ask? Oh, we got two microphones. We are in great shape. What do you want to talk about? Really? And 
and what Leah's problem is, other than the senior pastor, is the um, it's getting the parents of the kids that are already here to take that step of commitment to the next thing. And and what her kids can't do is get here unless the parents drive them here. And we've done multiple things to try to make that happen. So Leah's question is, everything you said last night and everything you said tonight is great. Mm -hmm. What practical advice can you give her about getting the parents committed to drive their kids here to take part in the program? Because we figured when, when I got here, before I hired Leah, we had 11 kids on Sunday morning. 11. And now we figure that if there's, if we can get all the kids who are regular attenders here on the same Sunday, there'll be over 100. So wow. that's the question. It's all yours, Mary Lou. And uh, Leah's right back uh, there turning. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Leah. Um, well, thank you, obviously, for all that you're doing. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this back there, and Scott may have some other things that he wants to say as well. But one of the, one of the really poignant things that's happened in our time um, at, when he's been the bishop is we went to a small church, that, and there were um, maybe five or six adults there that were all probably over 80, and they had decided that they loved all the children in their community. Now, it was a little easier because you could walk to church. It was a small place so these kids could walk to church. But Scott had the audacity to ask because there were these several sort of mismatched kids around um, that were apparently not connected to any of the adults that were around. And Scott said to one of these girls, does your mother come to church? And one of those 80-year-old women, very defensively, Scott she had, jumped down my throat, actually. She had, he had crossed the line because they did not ask those children's parents to come to church. And they were working on Sunday. They were doing this, that, and the other. And here's what I know about Methodism is that the, the um, Sunday schools were originally started by Hannah Moore. Moore, who was looking out her window at all of the ragamuffins in the street and saying, we need to offer something for them. And so it was really not started, and Scott has made an emphasis on getting those parents in, and I get it. I mean, it's great. It's the best thing if you can. But if you can't, maybe the thing we need to be doing is figuring out a way to get them to church, if we can, a way to work around the fact that many of those parents aren't going to come. The parents that are addicts aren't going to come to church. They're not going to come regularly. They can't get themselves together to do that. The, um, some of the parents that are working, they aren't going to come to church. And so one of the things I, I would like to challenge us to do is to figure out a workaround because we have kids out there with parents that are not sufficient. And one of the things we can do is offer God's grace to those kids without the necessarily the expectation of the parents. So I've, I've just kind of ruined your talk. No, but, no, 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 no. But, uh, but it, was a, it was a moment when we realized that that's how important, and they, that little tiny 
church in that little tiny town had baptized 12 children the week before. 12 children. I can't even tell you. I, I left that church feeling like, oh my gosh, I have seen God. And they showed us the pictures and those kids had grins from here to here. And they were every color in the rainbow. And this was a rural church in Nebraska, which the adults were not every color in the rainbow. Um, my, I'll get to you in a minute. My advice is for Leah and the others involved in your children's ministry to compare notes with other practitioners um, so that I become a collector of good ideas, but the inventors of good ideas are the people who are actually engaged in it. And it's a tough gig. Uh, so Mary Lou's point is it doesn't matter if the parents come. Do it anyway. Uh, that's a good point. The other thing is, it's partly about patience, um, and that eventually they might start coming. And thirdly, it's about transportation and workarounds. So it might be that the church has a van and provides transportation to get the kids here. Um, you make it easy on those families. Um, one of the stories from an Emmaus talk, where the woman's given me permission to tell it, uh, she uh, didn't have a car, rode the bus to work all the time, had two daughters, had just gotten out of an abusive marriage. Uh, Sunday morning was the only two hours that she was free uh, with, away from her two girls. Um, and so she put them on the church bus to go to church. Well, they were in a play. The older one had a speaking part. They pressured mom to come. Finally, she said, okay, I guess I can ride that darn children's bus too. <laughs> she goes to the bus and gets on and the driver says, oh, you're Mrs. Johnson. I'm so glad to meet you. We've been praying for you. That was the turning point. From that experience, this lady is now giving a talk and is a, a table leader on an Emmaus walk. Now, I don't know how she got from that point to this point, but I'm just saying that somehow it's the patience factor. The other interesting thing is you have to think outside the box. So another church, uh, again in a county seat town, uh, decided that they couldn't compete with Sunday morning. And so they started doing Wednesday after school. They arranged for transportation from the school to the church, and they began running Sunday school on Wednesdays. So this lady's telling me uh, that she was teaching these kids the Ten Commandments. Now, we are all of a certain age in this room, most of us, and so the idea that you don't, haven't ever heard the Ten Commandments is sort of crazy to us. We've grown up in church, we know what that's like, um, but we need to understand that for a lot of these families we're trying to reach, they're in their third generation of no Christian memory, okay? They don't know any of the Bible stories. They don't know who Jesus is. And so she's here teaching them the Ten Commandments, and she gets to the one about remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. She says, does anybody know what the word Sabbath means? No. Well, Sabbath is the day that God has set aside for us to go to church. Oh, said one boy, Sabbath is Wednesday. <laughs> Well, it's, it's that Hannah Moore thing. There was no Sunday school before the 1770s. 
It was invented to teach the Bible and teach reading skills to street urchins, like Mary Lou said. Um, actually, it was invented simultaneously in two places. Robert Rakes gets the credit because he's man. Uh, Hannah Moore was the Methodist woman who did the same thing, and she didn't get the credit that Robert did. Yes, ma'am. story for my sister and I'm the oldest of nine but at the time my mother and daddy only had four kids we lived in Houston and my mother and daddy did not attend church and a lady down the street who was not a social uh, friend of my mother's came down one day and she says do you mind if I pick up your two girls oldest girls and take them to Sunday school and church mom said I don't mind at all and I'm sure like everybody else she was glad to Somebody was taking care of us during that time. They could <laughs> sleep late or whatever. Free babysitting. Right. And uh, That's a great story. I was, I was uh, introduced to Jesus Christ during that time and accepted him. And I was about five years old, but it was as plain as day to me. Cool. But this, I don't know the lady's name. My mother's passed away, but she would not have remembered this lady's name. She never became a friend of my mother and daddy's. One day she came down and my mother said, I'm sorry, we slept late and the girls are not ready. And she said, you go get their dresses on real quick and I'll comb their hair. And away we went. Uh, but that is a real good way for people to take care of the kids that are in their neighborhood. That's great. There's another method that's being tried in some places. If there's an apartment complex in your vicinity, ask for volunteers from your church to move into that apartment complex. Might not suit your life, but there might be some young couple that's willing to be a missionary in that area. And then start a remote Sunday school class in the party room of that apartment complex. Because if you live in the apartment complex, you've got access to the party room. You can probably reach out to the neighbors. And all of a sudden, you've got missionaries reaching out into that territory. It's th those kinds of ideas that are thinking outside the box. And then uh, you can transport those kids to the main children's programs for something else like that. Other questions? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You said something last night that I can't remember all of. Okay. And so I want you to fill me in again. I hope I can you, remember it. You said I care. Oh, yeah. And it stands for, I, I stands for integrity and care. Uh, C stands for compassion. Compassion. And then A I, is accountability. Accountability. R is oh. respect. Okay, got it. E respect. is excellence. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, those are the values. As bishop, I serve on the board of trustees for the Methodist Hospital. And one of the things that the board is very conscious of is that you've got to imbue all of those values um, into uh, every aspect of the organization from the janitor up to the surgeon and the president of the hospital. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You mentioned, Bishop, about the faith, um, respecting and loving all, all of God's children. Mm -hmm. um, I know that there's been a difficult issue to deal with um, gay and lesbian 
uh, folk and others. Um, what do you think is going to happen? I know it seems like there's been a de the decision to it's been keep, keeps getting moved down the moved down the line a little bit in that area. And what do you think is going to happen in that area? Um, for those of you who aren't aware, the United Methodist Church has been debating the issue of homosexuality since 1972. The rules in our church are set by a general conference. Uh, the general conference has elected delegates from each annual conference. So there are 22 from our conference uh, that get to vote. Half are clergy and half are lay. Um, we're one of the larger conferences. Um, the United Methodist Church is a worldwide church. We're only, f I can think of four worldwide Christian churches. Catholics, Nazarenes, Seventh-day Adventists, and us. Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Disciples, Assemblies of God, they're all mostly America. So that means that when we go to make a decision about human sexuality, it's people from all over the world who are participating in the process. Um, our doctrine is embedded in the social principles, which says on the one hand, homosexuality, the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. On the other hand, it says gay and lesbian people are children of sacred worth, people of sacred worth, who should be welcomed in our congregations, invited to participate in our ministries, and should never be rejected by their family or friends. So in that sense, the statement has a balance to it. But it's also the rule that gay, uh, same gender marriages shall not be performed by our ministers or in our buildings, um, and that we do not ordain and appoint uh, gay and lesbian people who are not celibate. Now, where we are is now that same gender marriage has become legal uh, by the rule of the Supreme Court, uh, there's a lot of interest and pressure from a number of places and a lot of disagreement in the life of our church about should we change the rules or not. The General Conference in last year appointed or asked the bishops to appoint a commission. It's called the Commission on the Way Forward. And it's a very diverse group of 32 people that's meeting. They're going to bring an interim report to the bishops in November. Uh, we will get the final report in May and recommend a, a, a response, a way forward, to a special session of the General Conference. This is a highly unusual thing, so that in 2019, in February, all 884 delegates will gather again in St. Louis to hear the report from the commission as approved by the bishops and then uh, decide what to do. You should know that as a bishop, I do not have voice or vote in that matter. Uh, it's the elected delegates who will decide that. Uh, clearly, there are some very liberal United Methodists who believe that what our position is totally unjust and wrong, and that we need to be fully inclusive of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, queer, intersex, and asexual people. LGBTQIA is the acronym. Um, that we need to be fully inclusive of those people and ordain them and do same-gender marriages. There are other people who think the position we have is way too liberal already and that we need to make it more conservative. Um, but they will be satisfied if we simply keep the rules in place. I don't know that anybody can predict what's going to happen. I've outlined to you what the process is. 
What I can tell you is that since 1972, our teaching and our rules have basically remained unchanged. At the same time, the western part of our church, uh, bishops are elected in regions called jurisdictions. So I was elected bishop out of the south central jurisdiction, which means that from, Can from Nebraska to Kansas, New Mexico to Louisiana, there are 12 conferences and 10 bishops, and I move around within that area. So Nebraska to Texas. Pardon? Nebraska to Texas. Didn't I say that? No, you said Nebraska to Kansas. Mm. You forgot Texas. I never Texas. forget Texas. I'm now a Texan. And Oklahoma. Nebraska to Texas is the eight-state region. You get the idea. Well, there's another region that starts in Colorado and Wyoming and goes to Hawaii and Alaska. And that's a more liberal part of our church. They elected a woman named Karen Olivetto, who is married to another woman, and she is now the Bishop of Denver. This violates our church law. And the question is asked, how can a significant part of our church break our rules and nothing happens? Well, the rules are written in such a way that, well, white southern people wanted these regions to protect our white southern churches from having a black bishop or a Yankee bishop. And so this jurisdictional system has been in place since 1939. And it means that the West, well, they've got some maneuvering room and they've pushed the envelope. There's a lot of anger about that and a lot of desire to sort of rein them in. Um, on the other hand, we've had a couple of very conservative churches in Mississippi and one in Kansas uh, leave the denomination. Uh, because they weren't prepared to put up with all of the social media stuff about a lesbian bishop and uh, tolerating that behavior in the life of the church. Our church has managed this controversy reasonably well for 45 years. Yes, there are disagreements in the life of the church, um, but as long as the rules were clear and the rules were obeyed, we could manage the disagreement. If the rules are changed, and we become fully inclusive, uh, I think there are going to be a lot of our congregations and pastors and maybe some annual conferences leave the denomination because they can't agree to what they regard as unbiblical teaching. On the other hand, if the rules aren't changed, I suspect there are going to be some very liberal congregations and churches who leave the denomination because they feel compelled to serve Christ uh, by being much more open and affirming of LGBTQIA plus people. Um, that's the situation in which we find ourselves. My job as bishop is to enforce the discipline. I have never spoken on the topic of homosexuality, so there's nobody outside my family who knows what I think on the issue, uh, because it's not my place to be involved in that. I'm, not a long, I'm no longer a voting delegate of the General Conference. On the other hand, I'm really clear with my pastors that the rules are the rules, and we're going to follow them. Um, there are people who wish I was more uh, assertive, either conservative or liberal one way or the other, um, but I am what I am. So that's where we are. Yeah? <clears throat> I'm not real sure that your question 
was answered, but I, I wanted to. <laughs> you did a great job of explaining the two sides. And the process. That was my goal. Yes, sir. Congratulations. My wife and I have five children, mm -hmm. two of which are homosexual. Mm -hmm. One lesbian, one homosexual male. Okay. The male is very uh, belligerent and liberal. Our baby daughter and her partner are very low-key. My daughter told me one time that she was going to have a baby, and I said, uh, <clears throat> Catherine, you don't like boys, so what's going to happen? And she said, Dad, I'm going to be artificially inseminated. Mm -hmm. Well, out of my inability to respond in a loving way, I said, Catherine, that's for cattle. But she was artificially inseminated, had a child. Her partner was artificially inseminated. They used the same sperm dad. They adopted each other's children. Mm -hmm. Now, as a United Methodist pastor, I do not see that anything that they have done is compatible with Scripture, nor is it compatible with her mother and I who gave them birth. Mm -hmm. But we do know that God has called us to love them unconditionally, mm -hmm. which we have done, which we will continue to do. And I think that as a part of the church, it's our responsibility and obligation not only to love the acronym that you just said, but also all of the others that are either tattooed or pierced in places we don't want to see, whether they are alcoholics or whether they, you know, what, what, whatever their choice in life is. I think it's our... Thank you. Thank you for sharing such a poignant story. Um, I agree with you fully that we are called to love everybody in the name of Christ. And we're not in the judgment business. Uh, God's in the judgment business. And Lord knows there are, well, as I said in the worship service, I think, in my sermon, the only normal family is the one whose story you haven't heard yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so that we all have those kinds of things going on. and. In American culture in the last hundred years, um, the diversity of self-expressive behaviors has increased dramatically. You mentioned tattoos, piercing, um, you know, there, there's all kinds of stuff going on that simply wasn't a part of my childhood uh, growing up. Um, so how do we serve Christ and love people in that, and yet, invite people to the highest possible standard of behavior, whatever that means. Uh, and so how do we help uh, the alcoholics get sober? Uh, how do we help whoever live the best possible moral life? And part of the argument in the United Methodist Church is if you have somebody who has a certain orientation sexually, what's, what's their call to live a holy life? That's what the debate is over in the life of our church. Yeah. Those two women have raised those children to be the most uh, 
the smartest, the, the most well-adjusted, they begged their mothers to get married. The two children did, a boy and a girl. Mm -hmm. And uh, they uh, were brought up in the Catholic Church and went to catechism and learned more about Jesus and the scriptures than any of our other Interesting. Uh, grandchildren. Okay. So they, they have been uh, brought up very well and they are very well uh, mannered everything and very talented. Interesting. Other questions? Yes. What's the role of the church in what? In dealing with those issues and making possibly the church a forum to discuss those issues and be an agent of change. Um, those are very good questions and one of the things I don't do is micromanage my pastors. You ask how can I encourage them to do that. Partly I do that by engaging in such conversations myself. Partly by recognizing that in our society, those issues get to be, um, they, they, are, they are so controversial that the n number of people who um, engage thoughtfully and respectfully tends to be small. And so by providing places of, of safety for communication, that's a real mission of the church and encouraging that is important. Uh, what I've done in terms of racism issues, I published a letter on racism that went to uh, all the clergy and all the lay members of annual conference, was posted on our website. Um, I got some blowback about that, about how uh, I was um, not being truly good to white people and that I was biased one side or the other. Now, I thought what I did was very well balanced and talked about uh, racism, but I also was fairly clear that white folks have a kind of privilege that we have some responsibilities in this whole matter. Uh, and try, so by modeling that, that was one way in which I was encouraging people because I know some pastors who read it from the pulpit. I know some pastors who used it in small group discussions. Um, I have tended to pick my issues rather carefully, um, but it's the, the, some of the topics you mentioned are so, well, for example, some of my more liberal friends in response to the Las Vegas shooting would be all about gun control, limiting assault weapons, and uh, making sure that they articulated a position on behalf of Christ and the church to um, sort of bash the NRA and gun ownership. Um, 
I'm not going to go there in public because that's the kind of uh, complex issue that to get a good hearing on really requires a face-to-face -face conversation. Um, so thank you for your question. I'm probably not doing a good enough job at encouraging my pastors, but for the pastors who are here, they got your message, I think. Yeah. I think you answered Roy's question earlier. What if somebody had asked that man to go to church? Well, that certainly, um, that certainly would be an impact about, I mean, what's, as I was driving around today, I listened to what little we know about that guy. No police record, no history of mental illness. He sent cookies to his mother. Uh, he's got a younger brother who couldn't believe he had done this. Uh, he's a gambler, which I regard as immoral behavior. Uh, but, you know, um, he was um, a retiree whose neighborhood thought he was just a normal guy. But where was the character formation? And he was divorced, so he was living by himself. Evidently, his girlfriend was out of the country. Um, where is the accountability, the group of people who could have looked him in the eye and said, what are you thinking? Um, were there any warning signs? Um, what? You would think, but we live such isolated, individualized lives that, especially if you're living in southern Nevada, your air conditioning's on, um, you're watching TV programs. Uh, how does this stuff happen in our society? Uh, but he's not the only one there. I mean, how many mass murders have been? Sandy Hook, uh, going all the way back to the tower at the University of Texas 30 years ago. Um, you get, you get crazy stuff that's happening. Friends, you've been at it for an hour and 25 minutes now. I thank you for your time tonight. This has been a joy. Again, thank you to the Matthews family for giving an excuse to invite me. Uh, glad to be a part of this. Uh, thanks for coming out tonight and being a part of the conversation. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you very much for, for being here, and especially thank you to uh, Bishop Jones and, and Mary Lou uh, for being here. Um, Richard, you've been, I mean, <laughs> Richard. Marty, you've been quiet. Yeah, uh, would you mind uh, closing us with a prayer? I think Jim wants to. Jim? Okay. <laughs> we, we, we've had him. If you'll stand and hold hands. And we're just going to do the benediction because I know that one. <laughs> and would you receive the benediction? And now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit go from this place. And may the peace and the love and the grace of God go with you. And once again, may you remember, may you never forget, that there is nothing we can do, nothing, that will ever make God love us less. Because when God sees us, he doesn't see the mistakes that we make. He simply says, wow, you're nothing but the best of the best of the best. 
And can you imagine what your day would be like tomorrow if you lived to believe in that? You'd have a good day. Take care. God bless. And thank you, Bishop and Mary Lou, for being with us. <laughs>